Hello, welcome back to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. In normal times, a week is a long time in politics, but these are suddenly not normal times. As the coronavirus outbreak grips the world, ordinary life is changing at an extraordinary pace. Governments around the world are reacting in different ways as confirmed cases of COVID-19 and the deaths from it continue to rise. Borders are closing, flights are being grounded, supermarket shelves are being emptied and whole cities and regions are being locked down. But that's not happening in the UK, or at least not yet. Boris Johnson describes the coronavirus outbreak as the greatest public health crisis this country has faced in a generation. But the UK has yet to follow France, Italy, Ireland and of course China in shutting schools, banning large-scale public gatherings and preventing people from moving across the country. So we've gathered today, perhaps the last time we do this face-to-face, a trio have been at the heart of government as previous crises broke. Stuart Wood, Lord Wood, was an advisor to Gordon Brown, whose Labour Prime Minister led the global response to the financial crisis in 2008. Stuart, hi. Hello there. What's it like in Parliament at the moment? It's slightly eerie. I mean, there's a determination for everyone to carry on and uh, kind of be the last people who have normal life. But at the same time, particularly at the House of Lords, there are a lot of people over 70 <laughs> who know that very soon they're going to be told to self-isolate. And uh, so, um, yeah, it's a very strange combination of a sort of resolution and nervousness, like every place, I suppose. And you've tweeted that you're going to be playing or singing Jethro Tull to your local ha- care I am. home. I am. There's a care home down my road and they said they'd like ideas for entertainment. So I thought I'd... Someone Sounds like an older abuse the idea to me, of Jethro Tull being part of entertainment, but... I think you'll find it will keep us going through the next few months. Steve Morris is a former Downing Street official, was Director of Communications at DEFRA in Gordon Brown's first year as Prime Minister when the country was hit by floods, foot and mouth and avian flu in quick succession. He's now a partner at Portland Communications. Steve, DEFRA is not one of the major offices of state, but it does seem to end up dealing with a lot of front page news, doesn't it? Department of Disasters, uh, as we became, especially in 2008, I think, I mean, Stuart will remember this very well, but it was almost as soon as Gordon became Prime Prime Minister, I think the floods uh, that were taking place in the north of England were actually on the day of the reshuffle. I remember when, when Hillary Benn was appointed uh, Secretary of State in DEFRA, the first thing we had to do was get him some wellies and put him on a train because he had to go up uh, up uh, north. And then there were further floods. There was a foot and mouth outbreak which began days after the floods ended and then avian flu, rabies, etc, etc. Um, and of course they're not uh, you know, these were largely animal health uh, issues. There wasn't so much threat to human life, but um, it was uh, it was a year of cobra meetings and epidemiologists, and uh, you know, a, a very important test for government, for the civil contingency secretariat, uh, and for the political leadership. We'll come back to those points. Jackie Smith was a former Labour MP, and was the country's first female Home Secretary. Jackie, you'd barely settled into the Home Office, hadn't you, when you were dealing with your first crisis, the 2007 terror attacks in London and Glasgow? Quite some start. In fact, I got woken up on my very first full day as Home Secretary by my private secretary saying a car has been discovered in Haymarket, not very far from here, actually. And um, uh, luckily it hasn't exploded, but obviously this is a serious issue. And I have to say my first thought was, is this what happens every morning when you're the Home (laughs) Secretary? And luckily it wasn't, but it was a very quick introduction to the nature of emergencies and the sort of things that we did deal with in the Home Office. That's exactly what we want to talk about. Joining us too is the IFG's Kath Haddon, an historian and expert on how the heart of government runs. 
Kath, this makes all those knife-edge commons Brexit votes seem like a different era, doesn't it? It really does. And, you know, it's not politics as normal. We're seeing, obviously, you know, parties coming together. I mean, what's strange is actually, as Stuart said, we've got this kind of feeling of something's happening, but yet it's not yet fully got started. Mm. So the real mm. crisis is still to come. And uh, we're all sort of hoping that preparation is ready in place for it. We're all having those arguments without knowing exactly how it's going to unfold. Well, let's start with looking at lessons from previous crises. As we've just been discussing, the UK has experienced an awful lot of them over the years. What's it like to be there at the centre as it unfolds? How does the machinery of the estate kick into action? What role does science and expertise play? What are the mistakes that governments make? Our panel has plenty of experience to guide us. Jackie, can we start with you? You had a very abrupt experience, as you were just beginning to tell us, uh, in your first days as Home Secretary. Can you give us a sense of how government moves through the gears when that happens? Yeah, well, the first thing that happens, and I went into the... um department that morning um, and uh, one of the officials came through my door and said to me, uh, you wouldn't usually have met me this quickly and when you do meet me it means something's going wrong. Uh, So in other words what you begin to see is those parts of government or of the the Home Office in my case who have been planning and preparing for in this case a a terror operation uh, for that, that is their raison d'etre. That's that's what they do. And you, you quickly begin to see that in operation. I saw, I went over to the um, Met Police uh, and it was quite interesting because remember the Met Police were still at that point under a lot of criticism for the Jean-Charles de Menezes uh, death. And uh, I can remember the commissioner being at pains as well as updating me to show me all the different sources of information that they were using and how they were definitely on top of it and everything was going to be okay. Uh, and then we had a COBRA meeting. Um, we didn't wait three days for it. We had it straight away. And um, uh, that was, you know, an interesting... It wasn't my first COBRA meeting, but it was... And I think the Prime Minister chaired that one, but it was the first one where I'd been in a sort of leading role. Um, and that was... There you see, as you say, the sort of machinery of government coming into operation with the, uh, it was a ministerial cobra, so with ministers around the table, but then with all of the these sort of rooms and little alcoves and things where there are officials keeping everything uh, up to date. Particularly so how many to, people involved? Uh, well, half of them, as a minister... More than half of them, I suspect, I couldn't see. But, I mean, in that particular case, you had around the table a combination of ministers from various different departments, the security agencies, the police, uh, transport people. Um, It depends on the issue as to who you have around the table and and therefore which officials are supporting uh, those ministers. Just just give us a sense of, in that particular case, how many many people were you looking at? In that particular case, there were probably... 20 around the table and probably just in, and in then the environment of the room. Yeah, others off stage. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, the other thing that happens, and this is probably where... I mean, the interesting thing for a minister is you, you have to decide quite early on, what is my role as a politician mm. in this crisis? Uh, and how do I add value? Because actually you not, you're not an expert, not only because it's your first day as Home Secretary, but you're just not. And you have to decide what your role is. And, of course, one of them is fronting up some of the communications. So on that first morning, I did a 
statement to the press outside Downing Street. Interestingly, you know, people said, oh, she looked very calm and reassuring. I think there was a certain element of this is our first female Home Secretary. We thought she might come running out of the building going, oh, God, I can't do it. Bring a man in. <laughs> so but, you, um, you, you were particularly <laughs> conscious that you um, you need to not do that. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Well, Steve, tell us, I mean, how much does the Civil Service plan in advance for these emergencies or do they just burst new on the scene and you have to react? No, I mean, as Jackie says, there are people um, whose lives this is, whose job whose job this is. So, I mean, Cobra is is a room, and as Jackie says, it's a you know it's a table you can get twenty or thirty people around, but it's also got an annex where people are feeding in information. There are others who are following it, and so on. But it's also an institution, and the Civil Contingency Secretariat in the Cabinet Office does this um, all the time. And some of the people, I say, during, during the the cast of various crises that I was involved with, um, it's part of the cast rotates, and so if it's a disease epidemic, you'll have epidemiology. When we had floods, we had meteorologists. When you know, when we had uh, you know avian flu, you have a different cast of characters than you have for some of the other issues that you're dealing with. Um, but there's also a permanent cast of characters who are the the, the civil contingency secretariat mm. staff, and they do every single crisis and every single emergency. The crises always seem to happen on sort of bank holiday weekends and mm. all the rest of it. These people live. Uh, you know, they, so they, that is their day they, job. Yeah, that, that is, that is their, possible. Yes, it's their day job. Emergency. It's their night job, and and they do they do every single scenario you can imagine and so some of these people i mean it, it's the it's the the logistics of running the room and making the thing efficient some of some of this is just an administrative job mm-hmm. but but done i have to say absolutely brilliantly and some of it is the job of plugging in uh, you know all of that uh, all of that expertise so I'll, I'll give an example for you know, in terms of things which are new one of the issues we had at defra was a um uh, the we had the uh, the likelihood of having to evacuate a city because uh, this was during floods we had lost water supply to most of gloucestershire because the the Mythe pumping works at Tewkesbury had been flooded and so water was in the pipes and you couldn't get tap water. That was quite bad and we had the army on the streets. Um, but then we nearly lost electricity because the water was rising around a place called Wallam where all the electricity for that area went. If we'd lost electricity, we would have had to evacuate uh, cities because uh, a series of things go quite badly wrong the minute you lose power. Um, and somebody came uh, and appeared at Cobra they had been to New Orleans. They had done a lessons learned exercise on the New Orleans uh, floods and evacuation. They knew all the best practice and they had an estimate of how bad it would be, including how many people were likely to die. And Stuart, you were working with Gordon Brown at the time of the financial mm. crisis, just to jump subject a, a bit. When did you first get a sense of how big that was going to be? Well, it was a very different kind of crisis to the ones that <clears throat> Steve and Jackie have been talking about because, I mean, we saw it coming in a way. Uh, there was there was trouble on the horizon from the U.S. banks fall in Bear Stearns and then Northern Rock and then in September 2008 it really became more than a medium level concern. It became a very very quick crisis, um, and I guess that the immediate the immediate problem with the, with the economic crisis in 2008 was that. Gordon Brown knew that he was a market mover in anything he said. And I guess this is a bit like that, the crisis at the moment. The, the, so the communications really, really mattered. The communications really mattered. And the level of confidence you show, the measures you take, all had to be sort of judged to see whether the people would respond. You know, you're trying to get people... I mean, I remember one day, a Friday, about 10 o'clock, I was going home from Downing Street and Gordon was wandering around, you know, shirt hanging out in his normal scruffy way. And he just said, come, come in the office for a quick for a quick minute. And I went in and he said, just to let you know, there's a serious chance that the police will be on the streets on Monday morning to stop people taking money out of the banks, probably the army as well. Um, have a nice weekend. And, that, and so I went home, you know, no one got any sleep that weekend. So there's a sense that it could all go 
it could all tip into something terrible. But one example of where, I mean, Gordon Brown made many mistakes, of course, in all, in all sorts of ways, but for that moment, he was the right man, there's no doubt about it. And one, one little story about how he understood this idea of his communication strategy being so crucial, the delicacy of it. There was a Tuesday before um, a Prime Minister's questions on the Wednesday morning. Gordon spent, he, he hated Prime Minister's questions, and he spent a lot of time in the Cabinet room with all of us going in and out, trying to get the questions right. I'm sure Jackie was pulled in at various points to uh, go through various problems. Um, and with this Tuesday, in the middle of the crisis, uh, officials kept running in saying, um, RB- RBS is about to go under. And with every hour, the crisis, the scale of the bailout went up by a 10 billion, 30 billion, whatever it was. And uh, and Gordon just kept putting it off. And we thought he was basically just in denial. S- late afternoon, he said, OK, we're going to ba- we'll, we'll bail them out. And here's the figure. But we'll announce it at 7 a.m. tomorrow, because if you announce a bailout at 6 p.m., it's panic. And if you announce it at 7 a.m., it's strategy. And I thought he had an instinct for all his faults, mm. that was the right thing to do. And indeed, there was a mini bounce. It wasn't the end of the crisis yeah. because then things chungled, ch- chunted along in a bad way for, for, you know, for further days and weeks. But there was an instinct that there is some, the communications is so important with markets, but and also... the sense of looking, looking in control and looking consistent yeah. and coherent. You're trying, to, you're trying to stop people do things like not take their money out of banks or, in this case, not empty the supermarkets of to- toilet rolls. You're trying to get millions of people all to think, OK, I won't do this otherwise because of what, what's just been said. That's probably the most difficult thing to do. It's not pulling a lever. It's not changing a policy. It's saying something that everyone will then respond to in the way that makes things just a bit better. Well, I'm going to come back to that point about communications, but Kath, when does the Prime Minister get involved? Is it it really right from the start? Do we only call it a crisis if the Prime Minister gets involved? It always depends on the crisis. We saw this a couple of weeks ago because, uh, yes, you know, the Civil Contingency Secretariat uh, coordinates a lot of it, but actually it's the Department of Health and Social Care who are the lead department. So for a good few weeks, it was Matt Hancock and, and Health who were really leading on this. But then a couple of weeks ago, again, bad communications and suddenly Boris Johnson was involved. And I um, was looking back over Tony Blair's uh, biography where he talks about the 2001 foot and mouth crisis and he talks about that moment where Nick Brown was the minister in charge and Tony was thinking, well, do I step in or not? And then he recounts a conversation that uh, his chief of staff overheard where Gordon Brown was telling Nick Brown to uh, not let Tony get involved because uh, don't let him be all presidential on you. Uh, (laughs) So there's sometimes that tension and the politics comes out in it. But now we do see the prime minister involved and ultimately with a national crisis like this it has to be the prime minister but don't you think it partly depends on the prime minister well yes because i think gordon did like to step in he liked to be in charge and to know what was going on whereas boris johnson it strikes me possibly left it too long to be central to the handling of what's going on well and also we don't know what's happening behind the scenes there's a difference between being the public facing lead uh you know doing those press conferences and and sort of putting out the Mm. messaging and actually who's doing the work behind the scenes and making sure that you know heads are bashed together whatever needs to happen because i mean that's you talk about what is the minister's role but oftentimes that's what they say mm. is really important ministers mm. that we've interviewed is sometimes it's just making sure you get people together and yeah. get something happening mm. and we'll have to see how he plays it he hasn't been shy of coming forward as a, as a politician so um has got months to run but what are the kind of mistakes that people make in communications um, well, actually, I mean, com- coming back to the current crisis, I think that it's really quite extraordinary that the Prime Minister wasn't involved at an earlier stage. I mean, I, I am, I'm not a, a, a completely um, 
um, uh, unbridled fan of Gordon Brown and every way, every way he handled things. But as, as Stuart said, when there was a crisis, partly the message of what the what is coming from the top is important for the public when you're trying to influence behaviour and show that you've got a grip and you've got uh, you know the people in charge. But it also sends a very important signal internally. Yeah. Um, when all of those crises happened in 2008, whether they were floods or foot and mouth disease or whether they were you know, bird flu or blue tongue or storm surges or whatever. None of them were, and perhaps you know, the, the financial crisis was the, was the real biggie uh, you know, towards the end of that year, um, but none of them were of a gravity of what we're facing today. Mm. Uh, Gordon Brown chaired COBRA meetings every day, uh, including Saturdays and Sundays, at 7 o'clock in the morning. Um, and the message and the posture was absolutely clear, communicated throughout government as well as through the country, that absolutely everything that could be done would be done. Mm. And I think the Prime Minister choosing to spend weekends at Chequers, announcing that a COBRA meeting will take place several weeks into the crisis in three days' time after a long weekend does send a message, not just mm. to the public, but internally in terms of what the so, so if pace the Prime Minister and posture is. is, is you know, it is really clear that can make up for a lot behind the scenes. I'm, I'm thinking back to Tony Blair and, and uh, 9-11 mm. in 2001, and we got uh, former Cabinet Secretaries telling us at the IFG mm. of uh, all the, uh, if you like, um, almost comic chaos behind the scenes of trying to work out how to evacuate Downing Street and trying to find the keys to the tunnel that runs under Whitehall and not knowing who had the key and all this kind of thing. But you did get quite a, you know, very strong, clear response from the government at least at, at first. Yes, and it has a galvanising effect right across exactly. Whitehall. Yeah. Because you're, you're right, one of the roles of ministers is to convene uh, the right people to be able to consider the implications of what's mm. going on. Uh, Prime Minister has the sort of ultimate convening power and it tells government that actually, yes, your best people will be doing this and you, you, you will be your departments will be setting aside other priorities and will be focusing on it. And your Secretary of State will be coming to COBRA, not your junior minister and that type of thing. Mm. Uh, and it just makes it, I think it instills a sense of confidence and urgency in, in government. I think Steve absolutely right about that. I mean, the other thing I think that it does is, I would say this about ministers, but I think... It's interesting that Steve says, you know, a, a, a super expert in how you um, um, get people out of New Orleans comes to COBRA. What you don't have there is somebody who understands what the wider impact of that might be or what the unintended consequences might be. And I think sometimes it's ministers that say, mm. well, just a minute, if we close schools, what's going to happen to parents who then can't work? Or mm. if we, you know, uh, oh, what's happening if we... Get, have to postpone exams or all of those mm. that multitude of things that have to happen where actually what you need is somebody who's got a bit of an understanding about the broader implications of the decisions that you're taking there's two two things that are different about many things that are different about this crisis compared to 2008 and the ones that steve was involved in but one big one is social media of course right someone tweeted the other day imagine if social if twitter had been around when the d-day happened there'd be absolute twitter storms like why didn't anyone check the weather before they landed <laughs> on the normandy beaches and and it's a sort of facetious well, remark the world might have known that it was coming <laughs> indeed yeah <laughs> that's right. but, but bigger problems there is that. a sense that the, the sort of the 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 spread of expertise you know invented expertise overnight is a very difficult thing for government to know when to respond when do you respond to you know anger about the words herd immunity and all that sort of thing when and you just got to let a lot of these things go and just keep your eyes on the prize i think the other thing is that What's really important in communications in a national crisis, a health and economic crisis such as this one, 
is that if you're going to lead to reassure the public, if you're going to lead with scientists, medical officers, and obviously, you know, Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance have become sort of national figures overnight and will continue to be very, very frontline. If you're going to do that, you have to suspend normal comms briefings yeah. at mm. normal times. You cannot do briefings on the side to allow for variations in message or little insight into debates inside the team or differences between departments. You can't do that. You have to stop it. Uh, it, it, we had to stop it in the economic crisis because you couldn't have the Treasury saying, although they did think Gordon was probably making mistakes here and there, that you couldn't have this running commentary on your own differences as part of the comms message. And I think that is something that the government, who've made many strong plays in the last couple of weeks, I think that's something they have got wrong in the last two weeks. What about international cooperation? I mean, Gordon Brown quite mm. quickly emerged as a leader in this. How, how did that happen? Well, he, he, he realised straight away that you needed a massive response and that the scale of it was essentially not just doing it yourself and crossing your fingers that every other country would do it. So he essentially, he, he was chair of a thing called the G20, this organisation of it's still states, going just about. still going just about. But at the time, it was essentially an organisation set up in response to the East Asian financial crisis a few years before. Gordon basically saw, that's the thing I'm going to seize and make into the vehicle for responding. And then we, we, all, we flew around the world. We spent two weeks flying around the world at a breakneck speed to try and get everyone to pledge money for this big announcement to kind of shape the market. And I think it's, it's, it's much more difficult these days to do that with this crisis, partly because you can't fly around as much. But <laughs> I do think... That is a point. Yeah, but I think partly it, it is extraordinary how no leader, I think Macron mm. slightly accepted, mm. has made the need for international coordination yeah. part of the response. If anything, the kind of your country first approach mm. that we all feel instinctively about our own families, maybe in our own towns and cities, is being replicated by the leadership across big countries. I think that is a really regrettable part of the response so far. I mean, Gordon was able to do that, of course, because he'd got the credibility built up as his in his time as Chancellor. He'd got the relationships. He was, he was clearly somebody who could provide that leadership. And the world, I think, was more able to act internationally. I mean, Gordon wrote a really interesting piece last week mm. about the failure of an international response this time around. And I think there are various reasons for that. I mean, I got monstered on Twitter for suggesting that Brexit and our use of our international currency in pursuing that in the last few years made us weaker in being able to provide that international leadership. Boris Johnson didn't excel as foreign secretary. He hasn't got the relationships that would enable him to do that. Plus, in a world of nationalism and populism, countries, as Stuart says, countries aren't reaching out to others. And I think that's quite a worrying um, a development or lack of development in this crisis, that there is not yet, either in terms of the health or the economic impact, the international cooperation and action that there needs to be. One thing specifically in terms of international cooperation, um, which, which I've read, I don't even know this is true, but what I, I have read reports that there is a European health minister's daily crisis call mm. uh, to share information into a, and, and that UK ministers are not joining it for obvious reasons. Now, that strikes me as very worrying and very strange that here, you know, here we have something where our neighbourhood is is trying to uh, rally and coordinate a response to something which is a hugely important threat and for... Uh, political reasons, we are declining to participate. And, you know, that, that's something which does exist and which is there and which is happening and everybody else is using. On the other hand, on a more positive note, you might say that the World Health Organization, one of these old institutions set up after the Second World War, has been fairly prominent in this and trying to you know, put out a steady 
um, set of statements about what they think works and doesn't work. Yes, absolutely. And I think, again, we come back to the point I made earlier. I mean, one of the things you discover in these crises is that there are people who know an awful lot about this and whose life work is to prepare for it. So in, mm. you know, in terms of you know, a, a pandemic, uh, the number one item on the National Risk Register uh, is pandemic flu. And it has been for, for, you know, for many, many years. There are contingency plans. There are rehearsals. I mean, these, these people have... Uh, you know, thought about these and variants of this kind of crisis many, many times. There are, you know, there are you know drills several times a year. Uh, there is there is an awful lot of preparedness and expertise to be to be uh, to be drawn on, and that's enormously reassuring. So let's come full square onto the current crisis and what we're looking at now. And we were talking about communications. What's gone wrong, if I can ask a leading question on that? Because it seems very complicated, the message. Um, for example, i just take one that is baffling me, of that uh, people over 70 may have to stay at home in a couple of weeks from now for four months. I mean, you've got to remember a lot of this goes back to a strategy written in 2011, which is about the different proportionate measures that you might take in case of pandemic flu. And that's been the sort of, you know, the architecture on which they're building then, you know, an operational plan for this specific outbreak. What that doesn't have, though, is all of the sort of details of how you would turn that into plans at the lower level and all of the knock-on effects that that will then have on if you shut schools what does that mean then for people who work in the NHS whose kids need childcare? all of these sort of knock-on effects and that's what hasn't seemed to have been thought through and they're, they're working through that at the moment I mean there's another issue which is about you know the government's initial approach to communications as a government which was a lot of behind the scenes briefing that kind of stuff and for them the mindset change around that so i think you've got two different things going on that they're they're both working out what those plans are and announcing them over time and you know there's a big theme with the uk government's response about the right action at the right time mm. in order to reduce the peak and then you've also got this wider issue about how they as a government have communicated previously and adjusting that to crisis management i think that's absolutely right and you know to be fair what went right well obviously i think it was the use of scientists it was the use of chris witty and patrick valance alongside the prime minister that felt reassuring it felt like it justified the government's view that they were pursuing the science where things got more tricky is when it became obvious that the uk's approach was different to other countries mm. approach and then of course you you could come under pressure and it seems to me that what the government did over this weekend was bow to pressure from those who were saying well just a minute why are we doing something different to what's happening in other oh, we countries schools and we have yeah, yeah yeah why are we not taking you know action we want action why are we not doing what they're doing over there there is a completely legitimate I suspect, scientific reason in terms of the model that they're working on as to why they're not. But one, they haven't, and the opposition, I think, have rightly called to this, one, they haven't exposed that model so that people can actually mm. see the basis of the assumptions that they're working on. And two, I think they panicked and reverted to type and started briefing. Oh, oh, well, we're going to do things, we're going to do things, yeah. we're going to tell 70-year-olds you've got yeah, to stay yeah, at home. Yeah. right? And what that led to is all around the country, the same discussion I had at my lunch table with my 80-year-old mum yesterday, with her going, I'm not bloody staying at home and nobody's going to make me, and me and my sister's going, yeah, well, um, but mum, what about, and we're not quite sure what's going to happen, but it might come, and let's just think about, you know, everybody will now have been worried and concerned. I think that was a, it was a 
diabolical weekend for communications. Yeah. They're going to have to work really hard to bring it back. But was the mistake to react in the way they did? Yes. Uh, to start announcing all these uh, these measures, or it was the briefings, you think, the, the sort of private briefings to newspapers that... I think it was, was the, the briefings, because that had the dual effect of, one, it put information out into the public domain without any understanding about whether it was legitimate or not. It, it frankly, technical term, pissed off other journalists because they all started saying, whoa, just a minute, how come... Peston's being briefed or how come so the Telegraph's getting this story and we're not and that then creates an incentive I think for people to be a bit more antsy than they had been up to that. Because we did not those point. other stories anyway. You, yeah. it, I find it baffling that they haven't uh, moved to what is just the standard thing you do in a crisis which is a daily briefing led by the people in white coats. Yeah. Uh, you know, as every, Everybody says you know, the scientists are absolutely fantastic. Say, well, you know, Going back to the crisis that we were involved with earlier, you know, we had the chief vet Debbie Reynolds who was out every single day uh, we did a daily point after Cobra. We did a daily round of the studios, and we, we just yeah. trotted around Millbank every single evening for about fourteen weeks. You know, All right. Well, the counter argument might be though that, that first, the scientists don't always agree, and the television's full at the moment of scientists um, are steeped in the same kind of knowledge, um, arguing uh, about uh, the, the strategy for dealing with this. And then the scientists don't always handle, handle the politics well. It was Patrick Valance, the uh, chief scientific officer, who introduced this phrase "herd immunity" into the conversation, which has. Uh, been so problematic for the government. Yeah, you were talking about the the role of experts in communicating, and you know, my view is they are very good at this because they really know it extremely well. They can answer any question, and journalists understand and appreciate that. Uh, they are the right people to be doing it because people trust them. Uh, they trust their judgment. They understand, yes, of course, there are experts on Twitter and so forth. But having a regular routine and a regular battle rhythm where everybody knows that every day there will be an update from somebody who is in charge, knows what's mm. going on, understands the stuff and can tell them what's happening, uh, who is frankly not a political figure, um, is basically a feature of most contingency plans and is a really good uh, discipline to get into. And I'm very surprised that we're several weeks into this and we haven't got that yet. Uh, they have said, I think, today they're going to start daily press conferences, yes. but uh, led by the Prime Minister or another minister, if he's not available, but with, I think, again, the Chief Medical Officer and the Chief Scientific Advisor on hand as well. The reason that's so important is you've got to try and try, you may not succeed, in, in, in getting hold of the daily rhythm of the news cycle. You know, you've, got, you've got to say... When a journalist thinks they have a story at 12 o'clock, government sources have to discipline themselves, wait till 5 o'clock or whenever the briefing is. You know, That's the moment at which you have maximal, if not complete, control of the information that comes out. I, th I think one of the problems with this is that the, is the, the nature of the issue is such that you, you can't tell, tell the British public in three or four weeks we're going to ask you to do something to make you all much safer because mm. everyone will just want to do it straight away. They'll say, well, why not now? You know, we've all got a dilemma, I'm sure, about you know elderly relatives and parents. And if if the precautionary measures in six weeks are right, well, let's do it now because that's precautionary, precautionary to do it now. So they're not inducing the behaviour that they that they want to do it. I think the other thing that they're doing do, is do you think they're, they're getting people to overreact. Yeah, I think they are getting people. to In fact, actually, I don't think there's as much difference in the outcome between European Union countries and Britain as people think, because a lot of people are self-imposing exactly the same sort of distancing and quarantine and isolation things that are that are being required by the state in countries like Germany. Belgium, I think that's probably right. Spain. It certainly feels like that. It does. It people feels are like reacting that. Out, of, out of fear Absolutely. and shutting down if you, things. If you look outside today, exactly. people are well ahead of government 
guidance. Yeah. If you look at what businesses are doing and what individuals yeah. are doing, the streets are empty, the offices are empty. And, mm. you know, yeah, Jack, you said you, right. you've had two meetings cancelled just mm. while we're sitting here. Whilst we're sitting here. And I didn't, as I usually would, grasp Steve to my bosom as, when I arrived and Steady uh, on, Jackie. say hello. <laughs> and possibly you as well, Stuart, who knows? But Excellent. You, were, you managed to avoid it because of my reticence, given the current position. So what, what about the behavioural scientists who've featured in all this conversation and, you know, predicting and telling the government how people are going to behave and telling them, for example, don't go too soon because people won't be able to keep it up. You know, they write. What's but the Stuart's data? Absolutely, they're right. Stuart's absolutely right, isn't he? I suspect the behavioural scientists would say, if you're not going to go, don't go and don't hint because everything tells us surely that people will respond. And I think, I mean, I don't know, but surely part of the theory is that uh, what we want to create here is the right action from a government that isn't looking overly, isn't imposing on people. And to a certain extent, that is working until you stop delivering that strategy and start briefing behind the scenes. And then people equally respond as you would expect them to and start panicking about why aren't we doing it now? And that's the, if you've got that strategy, you've got to really stick to it and be disciplined about it. You also, you can't, you can't show your workings out in the margins to the public too much, right? This is the problem with this herd immunity idea, because as a as a as a concept for the modelers it's very important right as a part of your communication strategy it suggests a really bloodless way of thinking about the population right your public your public communications have That's to be cattle, every life is yeah. important you can't then have a supplementary briefing from whoever dominic cummings or whoever it might be saying actually there's this concept called herd immunity and if we get this amount of people infected blah, blah, you've, that's it you've, you've lost you've lost straight away because you're talking about people as statistics the, the modelers the sort of people steve and, and jackie have been talking about the, the people who sit in an office for 15 years with this rather obscure intellectual peccadillo subject who suddenly become the right people like in a hollywood movie you get brought out of their attic and suddenly they're in the front line and you think thank god they're there those the, the, the language that they use in their internal modeling and communications cannot be your front line yeah. it's really really important and also the, the politicians have to take you know responsibility for the strategy don't they yeah. i mean I'm, I'm very nervous about something that cuts politicians out of out of the picture if you think of um uh, the the iraq war there are all kinds of experts saying yes there are weapons of mass destruction no there aren't or whatever uh, the government had to take a decision and it was wrong um but the, the responsibility comes back to the government on that Advisors advise and politicians and ministers decide that's right. But your strategy might be, your your political and communication strategy might be, we're going to front and centre the experts. That's a a political decision, Mm. but the communication and the messages are being delivered by experts for all the reasons that Steve rightly, I think, uh, spelt out. But, I mean, the other reason why politicians need to be clear about this is because the buck will stop with politicians when when this eventually is all over and quite right. Well, let's try and take a step back at that point and just think about how this might be judged in the end. I mean, do you think the UK is going to be judged first against other countries? I mean, undoubtedly. I mean, it already is. And the difficulty is that you can't play the counterfactual of what would have Mm. happened differently. Um, But yes, I mean, there will undoubtedly be inquiries in the future and there will be international studies and this will be poured over in every step that they made. But but the biggest judgment for, um, you know, the government today is just the flow of that crisis. If they make it worse because of their handling of it, then it just escalates and escalates. And it is, you know, Stuart's already hinted at this, but once you start to lose control of that, lose control of the communications, lose control of public trust in particular, it makes everything else that you're trying to do that much harder. So these early stages of a crisis are really important for that. 
Do you think Boris Johnson is going to be judged by the number of deaths? Um, I, incidentally, I thought it was a very good bit of communication last week for Bo the phrase that Boris Johnson used about people losing their loved ones, because actually that was the antithesis of the sort of herd immunity criticism yeah. that you've you've made. Um, I'm not saying this is why he did it, but to be fair, he has now identified that a lot of people will die. Mm. Um, I d it's very hard to tell, isn't it? Because we still have, there is a lot of this crisis to unfold yet. I think it would be wrong to be judged on that basis. And I think it will depend on how he, fr he and other politicians frame it uh, as we go through. Uh, I'm sure there will be comparisons. There will continue to be comparisons with other countries. That might be more, uh, more, important and significant, I think, in terms of judging success than the overall numbers of people that die. I, th I think partly he'll be, he will be judge judged by the numbers of deaths partly, but I think also, I think whether it, if, if other countries clamp down and then there's a, ma a second spike, which is huge, and we avoid that, mm. I think that will be a vindication, I mean, it's a horrible thing to say, but a vindication of the strategy in some ways. I think the other thing that the Boris Johnson, the government, will be judged on is how much social order is maintained in the next few months. And, I, you know, I, I don't want to be too apocalyptic about it, but just the basics of daily life, if people can still feel that they can, you know, even if it's harder to get things, if, if daily life can just continue in some minimal way in, in, to enable things to carry on, uh, I think I think that is a that is a success, and I think that that will be something that, that other countries won't be able to do quite as well. And I think Boris Johnson is going to have to fulfil a threshold requirement of people on that one. What about the economy? It seems to be one of those difficult things ministers have to judge at the moment of how much to encourage people to clamp down, but how to balance out the uh, if if indeed they're regarded as a balance at all uh, the, the hit to the economy. There's going to be a lot of businesses in very acute trouble. And that's exactly the kind of area where it may not you know, be a clearly but politicians have to lead. I think that you know when it comes yeah. back to the, you know, the communications that we were talking about, there is there's clearly a place for the experts and the people in white coats, and there's a place for for the political leadership. Um, and actually, I think they, those can um, work very well together because people you know people look to them for different answers on different on different issues. But you know, clearly, when it comes to the knock-on impacts, what does it mean for GCSEs and A levels? What does it mean mm. for uh, loneliness in the community? What does it mean for the economy? What does it mean for business? Uh, you know, those are political uh, issues that you were, that, that you know that you expect political leadership on, and people will be will be and not just leadership, it. but money in some cases. If you think of local restaurants, shops, um, well, uh, well, it's businesses yeah. going, going going bust. It's interesting. You know, lots of businesses suffered in the financial crisis in 2008, but it feels to me actually as if for all, you know, Richard Branson is making a bid for a large amount of money for Virgin today, um, more so than in 2008. We're not going to be talking about bankers suffering. We're going to be talking about those small businesses, mm -hmm. those uh, local shops and cafes, those uh, entertainment venues, everything linked and to, also to arguably, all of those if things. this passes through, uh, you know, a year or two or something, these are businesses that could survive. It's not like so there's something that it, it, you know, is a, a new world forever, probably. It's, a, it's, you know, it's a short a shock um, or an immediate shock. And if with government help, these, some of these could survive. People will argue that they should get it. It is, but it, I, th I actually think it, economically this is a generationally transformative crisis because there is no way that politicians after this crisis can contemplate austerity as a response to, to repair the public financial hit. So there's going to have to be a very different kind of settlement about the amount of money. I mean, think about the way the British public is going to think about health and social care after all this. Um, that there is going to be an expectation of significantly greater support. 
and there's going to have to, as well as supporting all the businesses that are, as you say, in cash flow problems for a long time. That's going to require massive new resources. There's no way, in my view, you can you can do that on a state that has historically only taxed 36 percent of GDP. You're going to have to have a really serious shift in that balance, and I think that's something that politics is going to be adjusting to for the next 20 years, in my view. It was a awful lot of money in the budget we've just had. Does this really blow out of the water? The levelling up, all the other things that government wanted to get to. I think Stuart is absolutely right. I mean, the, the scale of this is going to be enormous. You know, we've already had the financial crisis. We've had Brexit. We now have. You know, who knows what the bill for this will be in, you know, in, in every respect for all the different aspects that we're, that we're talking about. I do think it will be absolutely transformative in terms of the economy and the public finances. Um, I mean, a few weeks ago, the government's biggest priority was Brexit. Um, and you know, the fact that we're not talking about the progress of an EU trade deal you know, would be extraordinary if you went back you know, just a few weeks. Now it appears completely ridiculous and trivial. I mean, currently the policy is that we're still going to go ahead and introduce you know, more cost and bureaucracy and uh, you know, burdens on business you know, at, at the end of this year. I mean, it, it, it feels to me that if there were, if there were ever a reason to put normal, uh, normal politics on hold, this would be it. But that, you know, those are going to be... Uh, contested political uh, issues. I mean, that 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 is the other the other big agenda of this government, on which they were just uh, just elected. But there has to be a huge question mark over that. I, I think they will be contested. Although, of course, we had a budget last week, which was an enormous uh, injection of money into the economy. I mean, not uh, transformative in terms of the necessarily the overall approach that was taken, but a bit of a move away. Uh, certainly, a move away from the idea of austerity. A Nord towards the idea that actually government spending can help you through difficult times like this. Um, they, I suspect there will need to be more to come, given the scale of what we've talked about in terms of what this will mean for the economy and for society. And I think it will change government and individuals' behaviours for potentially generations to come. All right, so finally, where, where are you on the spectrum of this is a, a temporary shock to this is the new normal? I don't think... Living with coronavirus is the new normal, but I do find it hard. I mean, I, uh, uh, perhaps we're overstating this, but I do find it hard to imagine that you can go back to a position of arguing for small government, austerity. Um, uh, I think Stuart's absolutely right, not recognising the contribution of health and in particular social care to getting us through this. After this, I think it will change individuals' behaviour. You know, for some of us who've been arguing for flexible working for very many years, it's pretty amazing how quickly it's possible to do it, given all of the, you know, difficulties that everybody says <laughs> there was involved in it. So, uh, you know, are we going to go back to having all the meetings we used to have before? I don't, you know, there are all sorts of very interesting things that still have to unfold here. I mean, the hardest thing for any government coming into this, especially a new government, you know, elected on a big mandate with a very clear policy, is to realise that this is now what your premiership, what your government is going to be defined by. You know, Barack Obama had to go through that in 2008, Gordon Brown to some extent. You know, with Blair, you could argue it wasn't until 9-11 occurred that that, that really hit him. Um, but for this government, they are going to have to make, make that mental adjustment that this is the big thing on which their government, certainly for the next year or so, will be judged. Uh, and realising that, realising that all your priorities that you had in place only a few short weeks ago might have to change drastically, that's a really difficult mental shift to take. Yeah, I, th I think that, I think whenever we emerge from this, I think the, 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 the core memory will be that we have to change our way of thinking about the most vulnerable people. 
Um, I think the economic crash had vulnerable people consequences galore, of course, but it was actually about a system in crisis. This is actually, this brings into focus elderly people, people who are unwell, people who have, can't, can't afford not to work because they don't have sick pay or just get paid daily on gig, in the gig economy. I think there is a sort of rewriting of the social contract about the way we think of those people, which will emerge from this. I'm not saying that everything's going to switch massively to the left. I think that's too, that's too crude a way of thinking about it. I think the role, our expectations, what the state does with regard to the most vulnerable is going to shift. And I think also, I, I, I think a lot of these behaviours, as Jackie says, won't fully switch back at the end on travel, on use of technology, on more flexible working, um, on the way we think about children and home care. I think all sorts of things will probably shift. The, the dial will be shifted quite a lot and it won't come back again on those things. Steve, last yeah. thought. I, I, I agree with all of that. I think that, I mean, the, what I would say, I guess, is that in the, I mean, there's going to be a very long crisis and I think everybody has said we, there's, there's a slightly strange phony war feeling. We all know that what's coming is very severe and very troubling, but most of us haven't really felt it. Uh, you know, very much personally yet. So there is this rather, uh, rather sort of, uh, kind of uh, eerie sense of sort of, Im- of impending doom. Nobody knows how bad it will be, how long it will go on, but it's clearly going to be going to be very bad. Um, I guess my hope would be that from the you know, the experience that I had in government, where I was thrown into less severe crises, I was phenomenally impressed by uh, the expertise, the systems and the institutions there, which has got us through everything from, you know, bombs, terror attacks, uh, you know, other, other sorts of floods, fest- pestilences, natural disasters in the past. And I hope that those systems are being used uh, properly and that exp- ex- expertise is being used properly because I think that's what we'll see us through. That's exactly what we're going to be writing about at the IFG from now on, as well as all our other work. And that's the end of the podcast. My huge thanks to Steve Morris, Stuart Wood and Jackie Smith and to the IFG's very own Kath Haddon. Thank you and thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if it gets harder for us to meet up in our studio, then don't worry, we'll be recording our podcast remotely. But the quality of the content won't be affected, so keep listening in. You can find us on iTunes, Acast, or wherever you get your podcast. You can stream us on Spotify too. And do leave us a review too. I suspect that we may be talking about coronavirus for some time. We've stopped hosting public events at the IFG, but you'll still be able to tune in via our live stream and catch up later on our social media channels, and we'll be bringing a lot to you that way. And if you do find yourself at home for a while, then do check out our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk, for all our work. And in the meantime, keep washing your hands and keep tuning in to us at Inside Briefing. 